All right, everybody. So we have Dr. Stu Phillips with us today. He is a leading researcher at McMaster University, a professor, a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and the American College of Nutrition. So welcome, Stu. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me, David. So I'm aware of you. I've seen some of your other podcasts. Um, I've heard about you for a while now. Um, but nowadays, so much is on social media. And you don't have a huge, um, you know, you're not really out there too much, like on Instagram or everything. You have Twitter. I know that. Yeah. Um, but you're not really out there a ton. So for the people who maybe stick to YouTube or something, uh, can you give a little background about what you do and how you got into that? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I've been working at McMaster for, for 20 years now. Um, I was a varsity athlete. Rugby was my sport when I was here at, at university at McMaster a lot of years ago now. Um, I don't play rugby anymore. Uh, more of what I do to stay fit and stay in shape is just to uh, be as healthy as I can and uh, age successfully. You mentioned your age earlier in the show, and I can tell you that I'm, I'm W. So <laughs> I won't say what that is, but let's just say is that I hope that, uh, you know, 50 is the new 30. Right, right. So, I mean, you've got a ton of experience. You've been doing this for a long time. Um, something that I think is interesting is we still have a lot of misconceptions out there. And I, I think part of it is how people look to, you know, somebody with a good body over the actual researchers. And a lot of times um, the most prevalent researchers aren't the people who are out there because they're busy doing the research. Um, so one misconception, actually, I wanted to ask, I've heard you in podcast probably years ago talk about um, you were doing this meta-analysis on protein and kidney damage. And I think most people yep. understand now that, you know, protein really isn't damaging to the kidneys. Yep. I mean, if you have kidney disease, that's maybe a different conversation. But for the average sure. person, it's fine. Um, has that meta-analysis come out? I am not familiar. Yeah, it, it was published uh, last year. A former uh, postdoctoral fellow of mine, Michaela DeVries, uh, just mentioned, give her a shout out. She did the, the work on that, really, and pushed it forward. Um, it was interesting when we published that, the, the, the hypothesis that, that backs a lot of the talk around protein being positive in kidney disease, I actually got an email from the, the lead protagonist, so it's a fellow named Brenner, if you go all the way back, and saying, you know what, I, I, I saw this meta-analysis, you know, I, I see you're trying to debunk my theory, and I said, yeah. well, you know, that's the science, I'm... I, you know, it's evidence-based, and uh, there, there's no link between the two. So if you can find something or show me, you know, a mechanism that links the two, then I'd be more than happy to change the conclusion of the, of the meta-analysis. But the fact is, there's no evidence out there. Gotcha. So pretty much it just concluded what we had been thinking along, that there's no issue at this point if you're otherwise healthy. Correct. Gotcha. And now, um, you know, another misconception that was really popular years ago was the amount of protein needed. And that still seems to be in certain circles. I think it's less now, but back in 2005 or so when I was getting into this, it was like two grams per pound. If you were a serious bodybuilder, two grams yeah. per pound. I still see that to some degree. And it was honestly a very big relief to me when I took the jump to try bringing it down to one gram per pound and found that there was no difference in results. It was completely fine as far as gaining muscle. Um, so why do you think, given all the research you've done, given some of the other research that's out there, that there's still these misconceptions when it, I feel like for a decade now, it's, it's been shown, not just with that, but other protein misconceptions that are still out there? 
Yeah, and, and again, uh, I mean, t- to come back to uh, a grad student of mine, PhD student uh, named Rob Morton, we published a meta-analysis in the British Journal of Sports Medicine last year. So again, this is evidence-based and looked at the doses of protein and the effect that they had on people's gains in muscle mass and really concluded that above about 1.6 grams per kilo, up to 2.2 grams per kilo, which if you divide it out, the math gets really easy because it's one gram per pound, um, you're, you're not going to see any, any further increases in gains in muscle mass and in muscle strength. So, you know, based on that, and that was 1,800 individuals that were included in that meta-analysis. So that's more than you could ever hope to have in a single study, for example. Sure. So it's really the only way to answer the question. I think the hard part is that there are a lot of people out there who are eating more protein, and a lot of these guys and and women are bigger, stronger people, and they say, this is what I do, therefore it's a reason for it. And, and, you know, that hard part there is saying, you know, you either are that big, that strong, either because of the protein or in spite of the protein. And I'm not going to say to people, you know, you can't eat more, you can't digest more, because the answer is you can. My point is that it just doesn't go to building muscle. So mm-hmm. it's still a choice as to how much protein you you take in. And I, you know, I have conversations with people on social media about, well, I take in this and I'm, you know, my answer is power to you. Just so that you realize right. beyond this level, you really can't get any more benefit out of it. You want to eat more, go right ahead. But I don't think that it's it's getting you any benefit in terms of muscle. Sure. And I've even heard people say, well, you know, maybe that applies to naturals, but people who use steroids, they're going to need even more protein. But really, it's kind of the opposite, you know? I mean, steroids yeah. are going to increase protein synthesis and, you know, yeah. decrease the protein breakdown. So um, exactly. I can see one thing being, obviously, these people are, are larger, like you said, just inherently by eating more calories, they are going to generally eat more protein. Um, so yeah. maybe they're just making the correlation there. Um, yeah. But it, it does surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, something that I have an interest in. So I've actually done intermittent fasting for a while, and I don't think there's anything special about it in terms of results. You know, I'm definitely not somebody who thinks it's this like magical benefit. Um, the reason that I do it is just because it's convenient. And I personally never noticed any detriment from it. Um, again, it was one of those things where for years I was always eating six or seven meals a day, probably for the first seven years of my lifting career. And I decided to try it. And I would, you know, I've told this story before, but I would freak out if I was like two hours without protein and we were driving. It was like I needed to stop somewhere. Um, yeah. So once I tried it, it was just this huge burden that was lifted off of me that like, OK, yeah. I can actually just not eat for a little while and it's OK. Yeah, I and that same that first year I did it, I gained just as much muscle as the previous year. Um, Now, in theory, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in theory, it seems that if you go 16 hours without eating protein, it should be negative, right? There should be a negative effect. Um, I just personally didn't notice that at all. And I everybody I know who's actually tried it has said the same thing that they were able to make the same progress. So I'm wondering if you have any speculation on that, if you think maybe that's not true and we just didn't notice the detriment or if it is true, why is that true? Yeah. So I think that there's um, sort of a a disjoint between a lot of the acute measurements that we make in terms of things like protein synthesis and protein breakdown. So 
you know, clearly if synthesis is higher than breakdown, it's a net gain in muscle. And if the reverse is true, it's a net loss. And I, I don't think that those findings are necessarily untrue. It's just to, for people to understand the magnitude of change that would happen if those processes are reversed, for example. So I'm, I'm very confident in saying that if somebody doesn't eat for, for 16 hours, for example, that the rate of breakdown would be greater than synthesis. So that's a net negative balance. And a lot of people go, oh, see, you're losing muscle. And I think that's true. Um, what I point out is the magnitude of that difference. And if you multiply it out by the muscles in your body, it's really in the neighborhood of grams of, of muscle that we're talking about. So it's a, it's a very small amount and it's nothing that you can see on a scale, for example. So you would, you would need some very, very fancy methodology to detect that difference. So I, I think that the, the magnitude of difference is small. The other thing that we've noticed, even in you know, folks who are on a very, and I mean very deep energy deficit. So let's say in one paper that uh, a former grad student of mine, Tom Longland did, these guys were on 40% energy deficit for, for four weeks. Wow. And even in that study, uh, at a low, relatively low protein intake of 1.2 grams, these guys were doing a lot of lifting and they were able to maintain their muscles. So I think that you you get a, a, a relative stimulation and synthesis that's quite long lasting with, with performing resistance exercise that really means the magnitude of that difference because synthesis gets even higher is really small. So now we're talking about you know, grams and, you know, really small quantities. So when people say, oh, you know, I take DCA supplements when I'm intermittent fasting, and I always say, well, then you're not fasting. Right. Whatever. Um, and they say, so to prevent breakdown, and I'm like, why would, you, why would you bother? The whole idea is to, I, you know, at least I thought, was to hang on to muscle, lose a little bit of body fat, and get a little bit leaner and uh, you know in no sense of the word and i think in healthy people particularly folks who are lifting uh would you begin to see muscle loss and so you know these these catabolic wasting states that characterize you know in certain disease situations are not what you would see in somebody who's gone without eating for 16 hours so i think that people's appreciation of the magnitude is is really where that falls apart so it doesn't surprise me at all that people can, you know, do that and lift and, you know, get lean and even probably gain some muscle. That wouldn't shock me at all. So, and I think the more, you know, the, the, the intermittent fasting literature kind of catches up with what people are seeing, you're going to see that it doesn't really have a tremendous impact on, on muscle mass. Sure. Um, that study you just mentioned where they were in 40% deficit. So they maintained all of their muscle pretty much. Yeah. In fact, the 1.2 gram per kilo group. So, you know, a, a little bit less than about half a gram per pound, um, were able to maintain their muscle, a group that were on a higher protein intake. So about 2.4, so just over, uh, one gram per pound actually able to gain a little bit of muscle. Now, you know, everybody got stronger and fitter and everything else like that. And a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's new gains. You know, these guys. I was going to ask if they were new to training. And, and, and they weren't, actually. I mean, they were experienced lifters. And admittedly, most of them were football players kind of just ramping up again. 
mm-hmm. uh, their training. So, you know, there might be a bit of muscle memory involved there. But I think in the, at the same time, we had other types of athletes who, you know, were pretty trained. And if you look at the strength values in those guys, they're, they're pretty strong. Um, so I don't think that it's really a phenomenon that, that's a new athlete. It's, uh, it's really a generalizable phenomenon to athletes in terms of lifting promotes a net from a net negative to a far less net negative state if you're not eating. And then, you know, the opposite is true as soon as, I, as you start to eat, of course. Sure. Um, there was another, I guess, discrepancy between real world versus, I don't want to say discrepancy between real world and the literature, but maybe the interpretation of the literature um, which is when people talk about, at least for a while, I haven't heard it as much recently, but people say, uh, you know, P values are better when you're lean and that the, uh, you know, you can gain muscle better when you're leaner. For me personally, as somebody who naturally was kind of fat as a kid and sits comfortably around 15% body fat, I've never found that to be the case. Um, I always found that if I, and maybe they mean people who are naturally leaner. I have seen something like if you diet down, it doesn't apply as much. Um, but for me, my best progress by far was when I let body fat creep up and I got probably close to like 20% body fat and I had an extended period of time where I was gaining. And I've never really been somebody who, when I dieted down, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm gaining all this muscle. If anything, I, I just gained more fat then. Um, yeah. and, and this seems to be the case with a lot of people I've seen, people I've trained. Um, I, I'm not sure you're aware of the literature I'm talking about, but so why... Uh, why do we see that discrepancy? At least I've seen it, and I think a lot of people have made similar comments. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can't say where that concept comes from, uh, to be honest with you. If you talk to, I think, people who work particularly in team sports and monitor instead of just one athlete at a time, and I think this is the hard part for maybe some people who either don't have a very good way of measuring their muscle mass or their body composition. And so they, you know, the mirror look is always the, the, the judge and the scales, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, that, it, well, enough said about that. Um, <laughs> but trainers, you know, one-on-one and, and maybe you, you work with people who are, you know, genetically gifted um, in terms of their body composition and their ability to change it. I think when you begin to, you know, sort of wash that effect out and talk about, you know, mere mortals and, and people who work with teams, they'll they'll agree 100 percent with you. And I work with a, a lot of good athletes and the way for them to gain muscle was to be in a, a, a caloric surplus. And so we used to call it the seafood diet. You know, you see it, you eat it. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, they got fatter, but but they put on muscle. And so we used to sort of use that approach to kind of kind of, you know, get guys bigger going into the season. And the day that you start the season is you're maybe a little bit overweight, but throughout the season you kind of lean out. And uh, mm-hmm. it's almost protective uh, because, you know, during a, a season of, you know, whether it's hockey or football or basketball or whatever it is, um, it's it's hard to get that in-season training to kind of hang on to the lean. So um, most guys lose lean mass. Not everybody does, but, um, you know, so it's not bad to have a little bit of extra body fat. As to, you know, explaining why you would gain more muscle when you're leaner, I, I can't really come up with a good reason for that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know some people speculate because you have greater insulin sensitivity, so you're going to have more muscle. You know, I don't, I understand their reasoning. I just don't 
think it's necessarily true. I, I think maybe there's some face validity to it, but I don't think it actually plays out that way. Well, you know, and the individual anecdote is always, you know, susceptible to, you know, individual changes. And again, you, I, I'm sure that there are groups of people out there that are just, you know, they gravitate towards muscle building because they notice that they've got a good physique. And, you know, so all of a sudden we're dealing with three or four anecdotes from people who are very muscular and who, you know, they would have been that way because of or in spite of what they did. So they, they probably self-selected something that they're good at. Just like, you know, this this guy's a great long-distance runner, and he says, I can do this, and everybody else goes, I can't do that. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, so good genes, you know, you're good to go. Yeah, I think that's the eternal struggle of having average genetics is just dealing with <laughs> yeah. nonsense advice from people with amazing <laughs> genetics. <laughs> I always say, you know, my my physiology is completely mediocre. So uh, I I represent the the, the average person out there. Right, right. Um, I guess I probably should have mentioned this when we were talking about the the kidney damage. But another thing I hear people worry about with protein is they say, well, higher amounts of protein stimulate mTOR, higher, you know, more mTOR could potentially cause cancer. Um, Can you explain what we see there and why somebody should or shouldn't be worried about that? Yeah, so this is a relatively new one on the block uh, by comparison to protein causes your bones to dissolve and your kidneys to fail. I think the answer has to be measured here because it's important to point out that in a number of mammalian species, which are obviously model animals that have been used to say this is what would happen in humans, uh, you do see adverse effects of higher protein. Now, I think the important contextual piece to understand when we're talking about people is to say that we have pretty good under, a pretty good understanding of how much protein it is that people, quote-unquote, require. Uh, I'm not so sure that that understanding is as well-developed as it is for a mouse or a rat, and so it's hard to place the findings of low versus high versus right. sort of moderate protein feedings in those small species for which we don't have an understanding of what requirements are. Um, I think the other point is to make uh, is that a lot of the mTOR stimulation literature and the the examples that are out there in the animal world come from either knockout or knock-in models, which are, you know, extraordinarily powerful tools to, to study the phenomenon. But even from an observational standpoint in humans, the data on this is is actually a little bit thin and and you know so i think it's important for people to understand that observational is just looking at the incidence of cancer in people who have higher versus lower protein intake and there's only one paper i can think of that's that's made an issue of that um and there's a lot of sort of fundamental flaws so i think at this point my my answer is still that uh, you know as a theory it's interesting. I mm-hmm. think that there's good mammalian support, maybe you know for a mechanism uh, in other species. How you translate that then to to humans is really um, that's a tough one. And and even observationally, there's not as much data as most most people would like to think. So I think uh, that the jury is still out on that one. I you know and I mean. I think one of the sort of, if you like, uh, great equalizers in a lot of this literature is probably to say that if you're physically active, um, you know, it's 
it's the forgiver of a lot of sins. Uh, even if you're a smoker, your risk for cancer, for example, if you're physically active, is is cut, you know, almost by a third. So if it can do something for smoking, then uh, I can't believe that it wouldn't do something similar if you're consuming higher amounts of protein. And that may not apply if you're going up into the, the really high spectrum. But, you know, we've got people out there on carnivore diets now. And so th they would be the ones that I would think would be really pushing the envelope uh, in terms of, you know, sure. what they might expect later in life. But it'll take a generation of people on higher protein to grow up, if you like, with that habit to see what happens, to be honest. Sure. Yeah. And you also have to consider, I mean, the calories have to come from somewhere, you know, so you can kind of vilify any macronutrient, but you got to pick your poison in a sense, you know, if you need a yeah. certain amount of calories to maintain, then that's what you need. And, you know, too high carbs or too high fat or too high protein. I mean, you got to get something in. So, right. Well, I, and I mean, I think, you know, uh, and, and not to criticize, you know, observational uh, data as not being supportive, but you know, a lot of people have said, well, we don't have the RCT on smoking to prove that, that you know, that smoking causes cancer. And my point still is, is that, you know, the, the observational data on, can on smoking and cancer is, you know, folds different. And I don't see a particular macronutrient ever being in that realm. Most risk ratios for even small micronutrients or their lack in a diet are on the range of sort of 1.3 to 1.4. Uh, and the paper, the one paper that's out there, um, it, it, you know, is, is fourfold uh, different. And, and I just, I can't believe that that's, uh, that's a real effect. In fact, we're actually in the middle of a, um, a different form of analysis to, to look at that and see whether there's something there. So uh, that study is uh, showing a fourfold increase of cancer for higher yeah, protein risk intakes? Of cancer and it's it's in a low uh, like a very low protein group versus a a moderate or high protein group so it's actually a protein restricted group and it's it's work done by a fellow named morgan levine and the co-author on the paper is uh, walter longo who mm -hmm. a lot of people i think know as a protein restriction uh advisor and that's what his research deals in how are they defining high in that study? <laughs> well, that's the hard part. Um, they basically take, they define a low group, which is actually less protein than the RDA. And then they have a great big group, which is the sort of what they call moderate. And then the other sort of half of that group is the high protein group. So the cutoffs, I think, are fairly arbitrarily defined and not the usual way of doing things, which is to divide the data into quartiles or quintiles or something and look at the highest versus the lowest so it's a linear trend when you use this very small very low protein or i.e protein restricted group um which is a method that uh, you know a few of us wrote a, a letter to the editor over and said that that's not a standard approach so stay tuned uh maybe a year from now i could give you a different answer cool cool yeah that's one of those ones where i feel like even even if it was found to be legit, like, are we going to drop our protein to 50 grams? Like, I just don't see that many people in, in this realm doing it, maybe. But Yeah, and there's a lot of people who, who talk about, you know, effects of, you know, methionine restriction, which is another paradigm that, you know, really is a euphemism for protein restriction because methionine is the initiator amino acids. So when they say, you know what, 
maybe this is part of the mechanism behind why plant protein, which tends to be lower in methionine and sulfur-based amino acids, why that's not as damaging in terms of a cancer perspective. So, you know, th th there are some sort of uh, logical arguments that you can draw. I, I, and again, all, all I point out is uh, let's look for uh, some good data to, to back that up and uh, and show me that it works. And I'm more than willing to, you know, to change my stance on that. Right, right. So I know you're not a, a huge supplement guy in terms of thinking that they're very effective or that many of them are super effective for muscle growth. I know, obviously, you've done plenty of work on them. Um, creatine is one you've talked about. Um, one that hasn't really worked for me, but obviously there's a huge body of literature behind it. Um, another thing I've heard you talk about is omega-3s having some research behind them for enhancing protein synthesis. Um, I don't know if any more research has come out on that since I heard you talk about it maybe a year or so ago. Um, but can you kind of explain a little bit about that and if we have a mechanism for it? Yeah, so, you know, my, my as you said, my kind of takeaway with it, with most supplements is that, you know, if this is the pyramid and, you know, the base is where you got to have some good genes, you got to train, you got to, you know, eat your, get your meals, is that, you know, the supplements are really at the top half or the, the top pinnacle of the pyramid. I think they add small uh, incremental amounts and uh, they're not maybe as much as people would like for you to believe. Uh, creatine definitely fits in there, no question. Uh, the omega-3 fatty acids, really interesting supplements. I think for years we looked at those for cardiovascular health. Now we're looking at it for muscle. Um, we actually just published a paper where we took some young women, we loaded them with uh, omega-3, so a month prior to them putting on a knee brace, um, which would have been the same brace that you would wear after ACL surgery, for example, for two weeks which causes a tremendous amount of atrophy, 7% loss in muscle cross-sectional area in two weeks. If you're wow. loaded up on the omega-3s, you see about half of that loss. So something's wow. going on. Um, and this in conjunction with work that a, a good friend and colleague of mine, Bettina Mittendorfer, has done um, showing that it enhances synthesis um, would, would seem to suggest that there's something you know, that, that we need to investigate a little deeper there. Uh, how it works, I wish I could tell you. Um, we've looked at a lot of things. We find some things that we're like, you know, maybe that's it. But it, it, it's really, it's eluding us right now. And I think we need to do um, maybe a deeper dive into some of the cellular models to try and answer the question of how it's working. But there's, there's definitely something there. I can't say for sure that it's a sort of, you know, an A-grade kind of supplement, but it's definitely a, a low-risk supplement, I would say. Mm -hmm. In other words, A, it's not too expensive. B, you know, there's probably a few other positive health benefits, and it's not going to have an adverse um, profile. And I know a lot of people then say, what about contamination and heavy metals and oxidized yeah. And I think the point would be is that you just have to be willing to pay a little bit extra to get the certified supplements that do actually do a good job of uh, controlling those things. So, and when you do that, then, uh, you know, things, something is happening there for sure. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, usually unless somebody is an actual like professional bodybuilder, they're staying away from any like, hard drugs that are going to be enhancing muscle protein synthesis to a really significant degree. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that there's confusion between insulin and like, you know, 
at the really super physiological levels and normal levels. Um, and I don't think there's a, a huge difference in terms of carb intake for muscle growth. I think it matters, but you know, I think some people like really overplay it in terms of timing and things like that. You've talked about how insulin is kind of permissive of um, protein synthesis. And so something I've wondered is I've seen for a while, actually, um, I've seen people who have done ketogenic diets and typically they're done for fat loss. That's like the traditional mm -hmm. reason. But along with the carnivore diet and um, some work by Dom Diagostino, keto has certainly gotten more popular. Yep. Um, I actually did it back in high school. And again, I mean, I was pretty new to it at the time. As far as like lifting, I was maybe three or four years in, but I, I definitely gained plenty of muscle doing it. Yeah. Um, however, I found that I actually put on more fat, you know, the idea at the time was, well, you have this low carb state, you know, your insulin's really low, so you're going to put more into muscle and less fat. It wasn't the case for me. I actually got pretty soft doing it. Um, yeah. but, but I wanted to hear for people who are doing a ketogenic diet, you know, protein does result in some insulin res uh, release. It's not biphasic, like with a carbohydrate, but yeah. there is still some insulin release. So for people doing a ketogenic diet who, for one reason or another, they kind of like that lifestyle, would you recommend higher protein in that case to try to get some insulin response? Do you think that matters? Or would you just still focus on one gram per pound and, and just kind of leave it alone at that? Yeah, so I think it's important that there are people who are doing keto out there who keep everything you know relatively low that is insulinogenic, so definitely carbohydrates, and they keep protein low as well. And there are a lot of people who uh, are able, through some pretty rudimentary devices, to monitor their blood ketosis, and they talk about, you know, how ketotic they are. And I, I'm not sure that it matters how ketotic you are and how high your, your ketones are. So if you, like, you know, if you want to go extreme and you're up around 4 and 5 millimolar, like, good for you. Uh, if you're good that way, no problem. Um most people in, in, in a ketotic diet, if it's higher in protein, hover around between, say, one and two uh, in terms of blood ketone concentration. Some, obviously, variability there. Um, my advocacy it would be to try something, you know, moderate in protein, if, if anything else, only for the reason that if, if, if insulin is low and protein is low, then you don't have a tremendous stimulation for muscle protein synthesis. Now, Obviously, if you're lifting weights, that's probably the most powerful stimulus we can provide. And, and so I'm not going to say that people couldn't gain or at least maintain their muscle mass if that's their goal. Um, but, the, but the number one substrate that stimulates protein synthesis and suppresses protein breakdown are, are amino acids. Insulin, obviously, not necessary for protein synthesis. Permissive for the most part. Um, but it is, the breakdown is exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So as soon as you get insulin up, breakdown, muscle protein breakdown drops, no question about that. So if you, if you elect to keep protein very low, then you're, you're losing a little bit of that effect. Now, metabolically, if you're doing that for a lot of other reasons, if you want, you know, good blood, blood sugar control, you know, I, I, then the arguments begin to fall apart. And I wouldn't necessarily say you have to do it this way. But there are a group of people that are definitely on a ketotic diet or a carnivore diet, if you like, that I think would have to have protein intakes that are, are pretty high. Um, and it doesn't destroy a state of ketosis, but it would, you wouldn't be, you know, low ketotic versus high ketotic if that's the distinction. 
Okay, gotcha. Yeah, you actually, so I bought a monitor just because I was curious to see as far as like ketone levels. I actually found it hard to get above one. Um, yeah. I think because I wasn't having tons of like super fatty, like as far as um, like yeah. really fatty beefs and stuff, I was using like olive oil and avocado. And yeah. they just seemed to be like less ketogenic. I was constantly around 0.5, even when I hadn't had carbs in like yeah. two months. Yeah. Um, but like you said, when I did eventually get it up there, I don't, I didn't feel a difference really. I, I don't know if it really matters that much. I know what you're talking about. Some people though, they brag I'm at three or four millimolars. Yeah. yeah. I don't, you know, <laughs> that's, that's tough to do. And, and, and I think you're probably, you've got intermittent fasting going on and you're definitely, and I agree with you. I think the heavier you push the saturated fats, it just really gets into that. Uh, yeah. And they, and they like to say, I am so ketotic today. And I'm like, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think you're so you know, if you're if your ketones are up around one to one point five millimolar, that's you know, that's a huge increase above somebody who's on a carb diet where they would, you know, sometimes you can't even measure them. Right. So, uh, you know, it's all relative degrees. But uh, I, I think it's indisputable that protein is the substrate that drives pro- muscle protein synthesis. And, you know, um, the arguments around people in catabolic states aside, uh, I, I think that mere mortals and people who are active would do a little bit better to up their protein and not for fear that they get kicked out of ketosis, but so they can maintain some of their muscle if indeed that's important to them. Gotcha. Yeah, it's funny, like you mentioned, I'm doing intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet. I feel like people in the scientific community, if they don't know anything about me, would just like roll their eyes because that's like, such, that's so trendy right now. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very yeah. different. Like I'm doing it for very different reasons. Sure. Um, sure. But uh, so, you know, I've heard some of these things talked about by you in the past. And I think I asked some things that are a little different, but obviously you, you have talked about a lot of the similar things over and over because that's what you're an expert in. So I'm curious, you know, what is something that you're actually really excited about now? Like what research is happening now that you're most looking forward to finding the outcome for? Yeah. So, so uh, for years, and, and, and it's embarrassing to admit this, we've done, uh, I, I would say, probably 85% of our work in young men and, and, and even older men. Um, so we've, we've moved our, our research needle and, you know, into women. Uh, we, we're studying, we're doing a lot more studies than older women. Um, they, they outlive their, their spouse, if that's the case. But, you know, women live on average about almost four years longer than men. They're more predisposed to mobility issues and disability. So we think that they're an important target group. And a lot of the literature that we understand and our mechanisms that we talk about, um, we're pretty sure they work similarly in, in young women, but we, we don't know as much. And so I think that that's going to be a, an area that we're hopefully going to try and tackle and get a little bit deeper into. So, um, uh, you know, uh, the other 50% of the population, if you will. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think it's really important that we – get a, a better understanding of some of these these omega-3 mechanisms and, and so that's one thing that we'll be pushing forward on very cool yeah it does seem like in the last maybe just like year or two i've heard more people talk about specifically research in women um greg knuckles is doing i think his master's thesis right now or he might be he's finishing up now um yeah. and he's doing pretty much all with uh women and so it, it yeah. does seem to be blossoming in the research yeah awesome 
um, you meant, last thing I wanted to talk about was you mentioned that pyramid and you, you know, kind of you, first thing you said was like, you gotta kind of have the genetics for it. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of like fatalistic when I, when I talk about the genetics in the sense that, you know, I never want to discourage anybody from having a goal and, you know, working their butt off to get to it. But the reality is genetics are a huge factor in this endeavor. I mean, really any athletic endeavor, but when it comes to muscle growth, there's not even really that skill component that might help you with, you know, let's say you're playing tennis you could have worse yeah. genetics, but that skill can get you to be better than somebody who's never done it. But when it comes to muscle growth, it, it seems hugely genetically determined. Um, so can you just give a little bit of your thoughts there? Of maybe if somebody does have that you know, bottom of the barrel genetics, what can they expect that they're not, you know, because everybody should be exercising and, and working out. Right. So how can they have realistic expectations while still moving towards a goal so that they don't get upset about it? Absolutely. So, so first, and, and I think the thing to sort of clear up um, is to say that even if you don't have the genetics to, you know, if you've got this, you know, this is where your muscle mass is and the, the top of the table is, you know, three, four standard deviations beyond that. And you think, well, I'm never going to get there is that the health benefits of doing exercise, no matter what it is, whether it's cardiovascular or, or aerobically based exercise or resistance training, are undeniable. And, and the biggest reduction in risk you get is going from doing nothing to doing something. So everybody out there needs to be physically active from a health standpoint. And it doesn't matter what you look like or what your body type, et cetera, et cetera. So get out there and do it is, is the message. Absolutely. I think when we talk about, you know, you know, you're here and you know somebody else is over here, there is, everybody has a capacity to train and adapt and, and improve. Um, how much you can improve and, you know, where you end up on the scale is probably, you know, th there is a genetic ceiling to it. But, you know, with the right amount of training and focus and diet, people can make tremendous changes. And, you know, there are some extreme examples of, you know, weight loss is one that's obviously very apparent, but gains in fitness and performance, gains in strength, gains in muscle that people can see. So, you know, I don't want to say don't train because you'll never be this person. It's about mm -hmm. setting a series, I think, of, of realistic expectations. And, you know, uh, my genetics are, are mediocre. Um, I got, you know, everywhere I ever did uh, in an athletic sense or anything else to do with exercise just simply through hard work and determination. If you have a little bit of that, then, you know, you can achieve a lot of things. So um, don't get down on yourself because you don't look like the guy next to you or the woman next to you uh, and have your own goals and your own set of standards and what it is that you'd like to achieve. But there's absolutely unequivocally no doubt that your health will improve, even if your body shape, size, or physique does not. Awesome. Yeah, I just think it's an important message to get out there, especially in the, the you know, age of Instagram and all of that, where we're constantly comparing people to not only amazing genetics, sure. but possibly steroids and, and things like that. So I think it's important to kind of just focus on yourself in that regard. Absolutely. Uh, so quick speed round. Basically, it's just one word or one sentence answers. Um, first one is what is your favorite source of protein? Uh, I, like I'd have to go with a food source, and sure. and, and I hate to say this, but I, I I could be a vegetarian if if steak didn't taste so damn good. <laughs> so my second question was going to be, if you had to go vegan or carnivore, which would you choose? Sounds like it might be carnivore then. Well, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'd probably have to go carnivore. As much as I I, I you know, 
vegan hands down probably a healthier way and all sure. that stuff and i i won't get into the environment but <laughs> sure. uh, so uh last one is what's the most prevalent myth that you still hear in the industry today uh, well, I still think, you know, I, I'm, I'm like the, the exercise and protein guy, and I still go to a lot of conferences, and there's usually a protein and satiety person, then there's maybe a protein and sarcopenia person, and there's not very many people who do protein, uh, so I know most of them, and I, and I almost always, and so now I've got a series of slides, if I don't actually talk about it, prepared about protein and kidney failure, so I, I let, that's still out there. It just refuses to roll over, and it's probably a function of how long it's been um, a, a theory. And I say that it's a theory that because there is no evidence. And so the meta-analysis was a true watershed for me to be able to say this is an evidence-based answer to your question, and we can we can talk more about you know because people say well lack of evidence isn't evidence, and I'm like you're right, but then find me some evidence, and and that's when the room goes radio silent. So I'm. Uh, that's probably in my, in my area, the, the most, uh, often asked question that I still think needs to be bunked, if that's the right word. Sure. Awesome. Well, thank you, Stu, so much for talking with us today. I forgot to announce it at the start, but today's donation will be towards Operation Smile. So Absolutely. thanks again. Awesome. And, uh, and so where can people find you? I know you're on Twitter, as we mentioned, yeah. um, where else can people find your work? So Matt Kim Prof on Twitter. I am on Instagram. Uh, I don't use Instagram much until I go down to South America. And it seems like everybody uses Instagram there. So uh, when I've been in Brazil, uh, they're always, you got to get on Instagram. So anyway, so I am on Instagram. Not a lot. Uh, I do have a Facebook page as well. Uh, SM Phillips PhD. Uh, you can find me out there. I try to get as much stuff out. But as you said at the beginning of the call, I'm not an internet phenomenon. I do it so that I can disseminate some of our work. Um, sorry if I don't reply to everybody's inquiries. <laughs> Busy awesome. doing the science. Sure, exactly. Well, thanks so much for talking, man. Absolutely, Dave. My pleasure.